Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now here on Forward Radio with me, Justin Mogg. This is your community radio station, 106.5 FM, broadcasting from the historic Habern Building in the downtown Louisville at 4th and Broadway. You may even hear Brianna Taylor protests happening outside of our studios today as we record this here on the day that the grand jury announced their findings here on September 23rd. So anyway, we, we power through with community radio no matter what's happening outside our windows, and we certainly support the protesters down on the streets. We're not going to talk about that so much today. What we're going to talk about is actually uh, creating peace internationally through something called the Peace Corps. Uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer, uh, served with my wife, down in Paraguay before we moved to Louisville back in 2005 through 2008. We served in South America in Paraguay. And we're going to talk to some folks in a series of interviews on this program about their Peace Corps experiences. And what better way to start than with Peace Corps in the 60s, right? When it all got started. <laughs> so I'm really happy to have some fellow uh, Kentucky Peace Corps folks on the line with me in the virtual studio. Welcome, Jean and Jean. Jack Wilson. Hi, friends. Hi. It's good to have you here with us. Now, you guys have a rich Peace Corps history. Let me give you the quick overview. These are Peace Corps volunteers who taught in Liberia in 1962 to 64. So amongst some of the very earliest Peace Corps volunteers, I believe the first cohorts left in 1960, right? In Liberia. And then uh, Jack worked at, for the Peace Corps as a staff member. He was associate director in uh, Sierra Leone from 66 to 68. And then desk officer for Nigeria and the Gambia in 1969. And director in Fiji back in 1970 to 72. Uh, so we're going to talk about that experience you all have had. And then more recent work you've done with an oral history project with uh, Peace Corps volunteers. But let's start with Liberia in 1962. What motivated you all to get involved in the Peace Corps in the first place? Take us back to that time. Well, it really started in 1961. All right. When we were college seniors, the Peace Corps was the idea of the early spring. We filled out applications in March of 1961. And then Peace Corps wasn't quite organized, and we didn't hear from them again <laughs> until the week after we were married. We came back from our honeymoon. Wow. A cable that said, show up for uh, training next week. Wow. <laughs> At which point we said, no, we don't think so. <laughs> I, I was in graduate school. Angie had signed a teaching contract. And so we said, no, we'll take a rain check <laughs> about next year. And so next year we were invited to be for volunteers in the first group in Liberia. Wow. And we trained in Pittsburgh. This is the beginning of Peace Corps when training was in universities. So we were at the University of Pittsburgh for some eight weeks learning about Liberia. And we arrived in Liberia on August 24th, uh, 1962. Wow. With about 90 other folks. We were all teachers. I taught social studies, history, and Jack taught English at a Baptist mission high school and, and some junior high. And we discovered later, because we were not from Kentucky originally, but when we came to Kentucky, we discovered that we had lived actually not far from Clay Ashland, 
which was named because Clay was Henry Clay, of course, who's famous in Kentucky, was the president of the American Colonization Society, which sent freed slaves to Liberia beginning in 1821. And then Liberia became independent, took its independence in 1847. And so always has had a very long connection to the United States. But it was fun to come to Kentucky and realize that we hadn't lived that far from uh, from Clay Ashland. Wow. So what motivated you first to get involved? What was it that was appealing about Peace Corps service to, to you all at that time? Oh, it was a, I mean, it was so a wonderful idea to think that. Uh, I, I think a lot of us in the early 60s were just motivated by John F. Kennedy saying, uh, ask not what you can do for your country, but what you can do for the rest of the world. So I think we were, it was, we were very... We wanted an adventure. We didn't have any idea what we were getting ourselves into, but you know, it was, it was exciting. And we had a really interesting group. There were, our group was the first group of volunteers where they took married couples and some married couples had been married a while. We'd been married a year. There was one couple, I think, who came from their honeymoon. Um, And that was kind of fun. Out of that group, there were, uh, I think, 10 African-American and one Asian-American. And uh, then people from all over the country, from California and Alabama and Texas Texas and uh, Ohio, Michigan. Yeah, Michigan. Where we were from. uh, Yeah, right. Uh, Just all over the country. Lots of different backgrounds. Yeah, that's one of the cool things that people may not realize. When you when you sign up with the Peace Corps, you tend to go down with a group of Americans for training. And now it's in-country before it was in the U.S. And right. that's an, a great exposure to all of America, the great diversity of America, right? And, and oh, it, Absolutely. And our group is really close. And we have had reunions at the beginning every five years. And then as we got older, every two years. And we were supposed to have a reunion in Pittsburgh in May, which we couldn't have because of COVID, but we have had, what, five Zooms instead, and we're still Zooming. Uh, so, um, it, it just, Getting reacquainted after quite a few years. Well, yeah, yeah but we, we just talked to friends who were Peace Corps volunteers with us in Nebraska yesterday for an hour. So, wow. you know, and for us, and this is maybe getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but for us, what has been really special is that there are uh, a lot of Liberians here. And in fact, our oldest friend in Lexington is somebody who was our student in 1962. Of course, we were young, so she's only like, wow. uh, five years younger than we are. But she and her husband came. Uh, there was a war in Liberia from 1989 to 2003. They came after the war. Phoebe, her husband, has since died, but they became citizens. And, you know, another whole story, but we have a Liberian family here. And there are lots of Liberians, as you probably know, there are Liberians in Louisville as well. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Yeah, to maintain those connections over the year between your fellow Peace Corps volunteers and then the, your host country friends is, is just a wonderful part of doing Peace Corps. I, I certainly still value that. So tell us about Liberia in the 60s. First of all, tell us about this nation that most people probably aren't familiar with and what the culture was like there and what some of the adjusting you had to do. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Well, I suppose some of the adjusting for us had to do with the American missionaries. For one, that was not something we had anticipated. 
And so that was a cross-cultural piece. The mission was run by a matriarch with at least three, sometimes four other American female missionaries, plus local trained teachers as well. Importantly, it was it was the African American church, so we were really having a, oh. a dual, you yeah. know, which was very valuable to us, really, because this was a church that. Adam Clayton Powell Sr. in New York was the sponsor of the school. National National Convention. Yeah, so there's a very strong tie between the U.S. and Liberia. I'm sure people aren't familiar with that history. You want to give us a quick overview of what that's like? Well, since the Second World War, there's a strong tie with Firestone rubber, rubber plantations throughout Liberia. Iron ore. Iron ore, and more recently, steel companies in, in the U.S. So there's economic ties. And Jean's already said something about the historical ties to the American Colonization Society. There, there were 700, uh, about 700 free African-American enslaved peoples who left from Kentucky to go to oh, wow. Liberia. So there's a definite Kentucky connection. KT wow. has a TV program on that, actually, that was done probably now 15 or 20 years ago. Henry Clay did not free any of his slaves. But there's a great book, Slaves No More, Letters from Liberia, that was written in about 1982 that has letters from former slaves back to people in the states that they were coming from. There's a part of Liberia that's called Maryland. That's where Jemima, (laughs) our good friend, is from. Well, Uh, there was a a settlement called Kentucky. Called Kentucky, right. And and people in Liberia tended to, if they were going to, in, in contrast to when we were in, when we lived in Sierra Leone or I was in, lived in Ghana too, typically Liberians would come to the U.S. if they were going to go outside to go to college. If you were in Francophone Africa, you'd go to France. If you were in Sierra Leone or Ghana, you would go to Britain. But the connection was always there. And friends of ours we were talking to earlier in the week, Pat Riley said, Liberians love Americans and Americans love Liberians. I mean, we just, there's a real connection there. Wow, that's wonderful. So it wasn't like, you know, these people specifically left the United States to resettle in Africa. And I was just imagining this reception of white Americans coming, and and I hope you weren't greeted as colonizers again or anything like that, right? It doesn't sound like it. Well, no, but you have to also realize there were indigenous people there. So there were... Yeah, there's there's a history there. I mean, in, in a sense, the freed slaves who came who came to be called American Liberians were in a sense colonizing. So there's there's a whole history there. That's that's part of what happened in terms yeah. of the, the Civil War, but it's it's pretty complicated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you taught there? What, what is it you were teaching and what kind of ages? Uh, high school. Uh, I taught high school English uh, primarily. You were teaching social studies. And for us, I think one of the neat things was that it was an education for us in African literature and in African history. Right. I mean, it was just at a time when, when people like uh, Chenoa Achebe were first writing their novels. We, we went to Abad in Nigeria and went to the bookstore at the university and brought back a whole box of books to our students. And I think that's one of the things our former students remember is that we were learning African history and African literature and and teaching it at the same time. And that was the first time they'd been introduced to it because they had mostly um, 
Uh, there were some librarian textbooks, but we're but, using a lot of American Yeah, but ones. the literature was American literature and English literature. Yeah. And, and I introduced African literature. Oh, cool. I didn't know there was such a thing. Nor did I. That was really exciting. And that had a lot to do with, for me, for my career. In fact, I put together all the things I wrote about four or five years ago in a book that is entitled Africa on My Mind, Educating Americans for 50 Years. And that's what I've done ever since because I am a teacher of teachers. I could always use Africa as content when I was trying to teach teachers how to teach. We're beginning a series of conversations here today on Sustainability Now with returned Peace Corps volunteers like me uh, who are now in Kentucky or we're native to Kentucky, uh, and we're starting in the 60s here today with Jean and Jack Wilson, who were Peace Corps volunteers in Liberia from 62 to 64. Well, you must have really liked West Africa because you stuck around, right? Tell us that story. How, Jack, did you become assistant director in Sierra Leone? Well, when our time was up in Liberia, we came back for me to finish a graduate degree at Michigan State. And Jean to begin her master's work at Michigan State. So we spent a year there. Then uh, we went to Cleveland, where uh, I worked for a nonprofit educational association for a year. And at that point, Peace Corps was looking for return volunteers to be staff people. And so I said, why not? And applied and was picked to go to Sierra Leone as an Associate Peace Corps Director. And we did that then in 68. What did you think about that, Angine? Oh, I, I was excited. I got to teach at a, a teacher training college, and that's what got, got me interested in teacher education. We took our daughter, and, and she had a what turned out to be not only a Gola name, Miata, but it was also a Mendy name. And so when we got to, got to Bo, like, uh, people said, oh, you know, they were glad to, to see her. And so, yeah, we had a great two years there. One of our colleagues from Peace Corps Liberia was working for CARE, and he set up our house. And we met lots of other people and had, had a great two years, even though there was several crews while we were there. So it was interesting politically and was there still a lot of uncertainty about like how long Peace Corps would be around? I mean, this is edging towards the late 60s. It's still kind of a new thing, but uh, was it? Well, but 1966 is when there were the most Peace Corps volunteers there ever were. There were 16,000 wow. Peace Corps volunteers in 1966. Yeah. Wow. So I think that it wasn't until we were in Fiji and, and by that time, Nixon had become president. And by the early 70s, there was some real question about what was and Peace uh, Corps got put into, into action, action and lost some of its funding. early independence and some of its funding. Mm. Right. Yeah. But through our time in '68, things were pretty good. Well, and it was an exciting time because because you were starting in-country training. Right. And uh, one of the Peace Corps issues at that point was was about training and the director, my boss in Sierra Leone, was a PhD psychologist and he poo-pooed the kind of selection that Peace Corps had been doing and training stateside and said, the way you find out people whether people can survive and function in the society is put them in the society 
And if you train in country, you can use local experts for the training. And before I left Sierra Leone, we did a, a split training program. That's the most Washington would allow at I that see. point. So we split a training program half in country, half in the U.S. And then by the time I was director in Fiji, I was in a position to push more for in-country training, which we then achieved in Fiji and continued. Yeah, the, the in-country training, I think, is one, one of the most amazing parts of the experience. It's three months now. I don't know what it was yeah. back then. But that's when you're really living intimately with a host family and you're learning all these new things at once. But again, with a group of fellow Americans in your training group and it's just such a vibrant, rewarding experience before you're thrown, you know, headfirst into service, uh, sort of on your own or with your partner in, in my lucky case and your all's lucky case with a partner. But I'm so glad you are on the front of helping implement that because it really is a valuable part of the experience today. Yeah, absolutely. So you were in all these different countries. Which one did you feel most at home in? <laughs> Well, they, they all had their advantages. I mean, I mean Fiji was, was the easiest one to live in, and we had two daughters by that time. Yeah. Well, when you say easiest to live in, you didn't have some of the potential health threats that you do in West Africa. But the complications of normal living, of volunteer adjustment, and the fact that at that point Fiji was not yet an independent country, there were still plenty of challenges. Uh, well, and you have a good story about the guy who was ill on an island that you had to get. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, evacuation of people from hundreds of miles of ocean away when they're sick is yeah. a small task. <laughs> Especially in those so days. There were plenty of exciting times, let's put it that way. <laughs> always, always. Well, I had an interesting experience because I went down on a seaplane to Onoilao, which is the farthest island from Suva. A Peace Corps volunteer had served there. He had been drafted out of Peace Corps, gone to Vietnam, and, and was killed in Vietnam. Wow. His parents brought his ashes to Onoilao after he died. Wow. So, I mean, this is you know, 1970 and, and so uh, were one of the things that was going on, of course, in the 60s was Vietnam as well as Peace Corps. Yeah, that must have been an interesting time. Um, so you've got these Peace Corps kids. What, what, are, what are your children's reflections on this time? Well, they both have traveled internationally. One went off for summer in Europe. One of them went to Cameroon in West Africa. Wow. For a summer, so uh, we, we have we have a younger granddaughter who's going to be a senior in high school who's thinking about teaching English as a second language and is taking AP Spanish, so she's had Spanish for a long time and hoping to you know that might be looking forward to. She was supposed to go overseas this spring, but of course that didn't happen. So I think it keeps going. We had we hosted an exchange student. The kids grew up with you know always having people from other countries in the house, partially because we were part of the university and the. Liberian family's always been there at Thanksgiving, too. Great. So now let's bring your story back home to Kentucky. 1975 is when you, you moved back here. What was, what was the motivation? What did you all do here? 
Oh, we we didn't well, move back here. We never lived here. Before. We never lived here. We, I got we, you. Sorry. Have you, did you come back home when you came to Louisville? No, no. I, I had no okay. connections to Kentucky. Okay. All right. Well, we didn't either. No. Okay. So this was just like going to another country. Uh, yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> we came here in 75. When I finished my time in Fiji as director, came back to the United States and was well, and you have to say that people in administration, Peace Corps administration, can only be in administration for five or six years. Right. There's a time, There's a time limit. limit. So when that time was up and we came back to the States, I had to look for a job, obviously. And the next good cause in 1972 was the environment. And so I went to work at the organizing base of the Ohio EPA and worked for roughly three years while Angene was getting her PhD at Ohio State. She got a job offer at the University of Kentucky, a one-year contract. I was ticked off at the governor of Ohio at that <laughs> point and the EPA, and I said, why not? So we moved to Lexington on a really a nine-month contract. Wow. But we'd lived in, this was about the seventh place we'd lived in since we got married. <laughs> you never unpacked. And we, and we didn't, yeah, and we, we didn't know that we would stay for, you know, 45 years. Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, I'm over 11 years into it now. <laughs> I can't believe I'm still here, but quite happy to be here. And so you've gotten involved in, in Peace Corps organizations since your return. Tell us a little bit about that. I'm sure people aren't even familiar with these organizations. Well, there was sort of like an alumni association uh, you think of as a university, returned Peace Corps volunteers in a number of places. And uh, there were at one time two different organizations in Kentucky. Now it's all one. I was uh, briefly involved. Well, we've been involved for many years with it, but I was chair of that group at one time. In the, in the late 90s, I think. And yeah. I was on the National Peace Corps Association board from about 97 to 2003, working on, at that point, we were doing a lot in global education. We had a newsletter and then an online newsletter where we were, and that was my area of expertise was global education, international education. So we got involved at the, at the national level and then later became members of the Shriver Circle. And the Shriver Circle is a group of returned Peace Corps volunteers who support National Peace Corps Association and support it monetarily and well, with time. ideas, I guess, in time. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and it's named after Sergeant Shriver, who founded the Peace Corps, right? Exactly. That particular group, supportive group of the National Peace Corps Association. Yes, correct. So all of these groups, whether they're Kentucky or national, are, are kind of helping return volunteers do the work of what's called the third goal of the Peace Corps. So let's let's talk a little bit about that and, and just familiarize our listeners with these three goal, three big goals of the what the Peace Corps is. Yeah, that goal is called bringing it back home and getting involved in serving in the community. I always think of Shriver at the 40th anniversary, you know, and he, he was as old as we are then, uh, saying, serve, serve, serve. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And he meant that. And that's part of what we try to do in the communities in many different ways, whether it's community radio, such as you are doing, or with nonprofit organizations. We have done some of that in Lexington. Oh, and, yeah. 
out with the Liberian NGOs, I might add. And more recently, or since retirement, I've gotten involved in the other project of uh, writing a couple of books. And Jean's mentioned one of her own writings, but the Peace Corps Reflection book is the main one, the one we, we did for the 25th. 50th, 50th. Can you believe it? Yeah. 50th anniversary of Peace Corps. Yeah, and I, um, I want to ask you about those books. Uh, let me just quickly reintroduce you folks, and and I also want to put a little, just tying it a bow here. The first two goals of Peace Corps, one is to provide trained professionals, right, to help in sustainable development abroad. The second goal is to sort of exchange so that folks abroad can understand Americans better. And then that third goal is to help Americans understand the folks in your host country better. So that's, those are the three big goals of Peace Corps. And as return volunteers, we're really pushing that third goal. But let me reintroduce you quickly. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Forward Radio here on 106. 6.5 6.5 FM or forwardradio.org. I'm Justin Mogg, and this is Sustainability Now. One of my many hats I wear is as a returned Peace Corps volunteer. I served in Paraguay from 2005 to 8. And so I decided it's been, you know, I've been wanting to do this for a long time, is interview folks from Kentucky who also served in the Peace Corps. And so we're kicking off a series of interviews this week with uh, folks from the 60s who served in the very first decade of the Peace Corps, and Jean and Jack Wilson, who now live in Lexington, is it? Yes. Yeah, you're now in Lexington. Great. We have lived here since 1975. Wow, wow. And you've been touring around the state interviewing fellow volunteers from the Peace Corps and produced this book in, in 2011, published by University of Kentucky Press, called Voices from the Peace Corps, 50 Years of Kentucky Volunteers. Tell us about this oral history project. How did you get the idea for this? Jack was retired and I retired in 2004. I knew Terry Birdwhistle, who was head of the Nunn Center for Oral History at the University of Kentucky. And University of Kentucky's Oral History Center has a very fine reputation, internationally known at this point. And um, I said to Terry, you've got lots of interviews of, of, I don't know, Kentucky governors and politicians and black pastors and veterans and all kinds of people, but you don't have any of Peace Corps volunteers. And Terry said, fine, you know do it. And, and so Jack and I started in 2004 interviewing wow. Peace Corps volunteers who had who were living in Kentucky, had connections to Kentucky. And there had been some, somebody had done about 10 or 12 of the uh, interviews and we'd used those two, but, but in the end we had a hundred and we interviewed people from all five decades. And then we used those as the basis for, Terry said then there's a series that the University Press of Kentucky has called Kentucky Remembered. Why don't you write a book? And so we did that. And we're very happy to report that the press is going to put that book out in paperback next summer with a new introduction by the uh, president of National Peace Corps Association, Glenn Bloomhorst. Those just got sent off to the press yesterday and today so more people can can read it and it'll be cheaper than than it was when (laughs) that's great wow i have lots of questions about this wonderful project so as a radio guy i have to ask did you get recordings of these interviews are they available absolutely and you can listen to them they were transcribed you could read them okay Uh, they're putting in uh, locations on them they're very easy. If you have you not seen them, Justin, or listened to them? No, I haven't. Yes. I was. I've been meaning oh, well, to ask we'll, you about we'll, this. We'll, we'll send you the link. Okay, and I'll because include it in the show notes. Now, what is happening is 
that the, the National Peace Corps Association is working with the Nunn Center. They've done 87 video interviews. Jack was interviewed last month, right? Yeah. And those are going to be, I think, available after December 1st. But ours were done actually with the, with really old technology. Yeah. I mean, it was tapes. It started that, you with know, cassette recorder and then went to a digital. Yep, well, yep. It didn't go to digital until the, the next the book. But that was such fun. Oh, we, we had a we had a wonderful time doing that. Yeah. And they're great to listen to. Oh, I'm, so. So, I'm so glad those tape recordings aren't lost, because when I first got into radio, it was, you know, using a razor blade on reel-to-reel magnetic yeah. tape, and yeah. a lot yeah. of that no, is no, lost. But, I mean, the Nun Center has, has all kinds of oral histories, but ours are right there, and we'll, we, will, we will send you a, a link to them. They have just been identified and changed the name because they're going to be part of this larger group, the Peace Corps Archive, Peace Corps Oral History Project. And in parentheses, the Kentucky ones from 2004 to 2011 are going to be part of that. Oh, that's so exciting. So so how did you uh, identify all these volunteers around the state? Oh, well, that was easy. When we started, uh, there was a a list of return volunteers of about 350 statewide. And, you know, like a lot of lists like that, they weren't all accurate, but, but, we, had, but we had more than enough to run down. And so we interviewed volunteers, well, some from Eastern, in Eastern Kentucky, Lexington, Frankfurt, Louisville, Murray, Bowling Green. Uh, all, all, all over the place. I mean, we just, you know, sometimes sometimes there were people that we knew and then somebody would say, well, this would be a good person. And then there were some people who didn't want to be interviewed. I mean, I can think of one Louisvillian that we would have liked to have interviewed. He didn't want to be, you know, didn't ever, sure. never make the connection. But I imagine so, you were also trying to get a range of, of oh, yes. generations and places of service as well, That's right? Correct. correct. That's correct. Because we wanted to have... Uh, a lot of different countries. I don't think we have anybody from Paraguay. There you uh, go. <laughs> but too bad, because we did after the book came out, actually. Craig Bore, if you know him in Lexington, he served in Nicaragua, and so we added his interview. He's not in the book. And we added somebody from Romania, because we didn't have anybody from Romania. And and now, of course, because there are more interviews, I mean, you can get on the list to be video interviewed. You should do that. Yeah. Uh, find that interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so you get all these great stories from all these people. How do you narrow all that down? How, what ends up on the cutting room floor? Well, <laughs> a lot. When, when we gave the manuscript to the acquisitions editor, she said... She weighed it. She weighed it. And Literally she said, weighed kidding. it. It's about 100 pages. <laughs> now, we say in, in our preface that we spent time, we were, I don't know, we were on a Western trip at, at, no, at some point, and then another time we were driving to D.C., and, and I'd read it, and then we'd say, oh, well, we'll have to leave that out. That volunteer is already has something quoted from her or him someplace else because the way it's organized it's not one story after another it starts with why we went and then goes through training and then uh, uh, your job the toughest job you'll ever love uh, (laughs) and then friends can become family what are the other chapters i died uh and then and then coming home in the last chapter is citizens of the world Wow. And so what we were doing was taking pieces of, we, we tried, I think we made it that we, that every single 
volunteer we interviewed was in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was going to be my next big question. How do you organize it all? And that sounds like a great way, like sort of the yeah. temporal yeah. experience of going through the Peace Corps. That's really cool. Instead of geographically or something. That's that's neat. Uh, wow. OK, so folks should be looking for this book. It's already available in hardback, but you could get it. Next year in paperback, it's called Voices from the Peace Corps, 50 Years of Kentucky Volunteers. And if you look in the show notes for this program on SoundCloud, I'll include the link then to the audio versions of these interviews. I'm really excited to check them out myself. And then let's talk about, in our last bit of time here, your other oral history project. In, in This year, in January, you released a book called Voices of African Immigrants in Kentucky, Migration, Identity, and Transnationality. Wow. Tell me about this book. Well, what happened was we had a good time doing the other one. <laughs> so we said, you know, we know a lot of African immigrants, and let's interview some. Cool. So we They're citizens of Kentucky now, too, many of them. Yeah. And we decided that in writing the book, that it's in the same series, it's Kentucky, and it's Kentucky Remembered Series. And we decided that we would write it with two friends who we had interviewed who were professors, one from Zimbabwe, Francis Nizoni is from the Zimbabwe and is a history prof at the UK. And he's the one who sort of introduced us to this idea of transnationality. And Ido Tenyo is a professor at Bluegrass Community and Technical College. And she's an English professor there. And so she, as a Kenya, from right. Kenya, and as a mother, she has, they have three kids. And so she did interviews of younger, second, second generation. generation kids. And we had a great time. The four of us met regularly in writing the book, met regularly at Sov's uh, West African Grill in Lexington. And Sov signed our contracts when we got contracts from the uh, witness. witness. Yes, we signed them. He witnessed them. <laughs> and we, we had a wonderful launch on January 26th and did a couple of things. Then COVID, then COVID hit. And so yeah. we're really sorry that we haven't had, I mean, we were supposed to be in actually... We were supposed to be in Louisville this week, I think. Oh, my gosh. The library would have been doing an international week. You know, that's not happening. And there are lots of other things that just have not happened. Puts a crimp so, in your book tour, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, really well hopefully there'll, there'll be, be a no time. Book festival, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what were some of the common themes that you found in your interviews with uh, African immigrants to Kentucky? One was how they found settling in. Kentucky, how they found becoming Kentuckians, and then in this concept of transnationality, not totally losing connection with the country in which they were born, and some of the difficulties that they had when they first came. For example, language, or at a minimum, even for English speakers, accent. Oh, yeah. I can and imagine. As, <laughs> and as Kentuckians, we understand a range of accents right. in English, right? <laughs> but those are some of the common issues. Yeah, I, well, the first chapter is focuses on where they came from, because that was real important to us, I suppose, because I tried to teach people about African and African countries and peoples for a long time. I wanted to be sure that people knew something about their background. And so the first chapter is all about that, what their experiences were in their home country, not just focused on their immigrant experience. Right. And then one of the chapters is connecting and contributing to two continents, which, as Jack said, 
they've done both. And that's where the concept of transnationality comes in. And our focus is, our belief is that it's possible to be transnational and that even that may be even possible for some of us because we've spent a lot of time in another country and feel comfortable there, maybe speak the language, like the food, you know, all those good kinds of things. But that was, it was a really uh, rewarding experience to interview people. Did these folks all come from sub-Saharan Africa or did some North Africans get Uh, in the book too? No, that was an issue to begin with. What, you know, what was Africa? And we said the entire continent. All right. (laughs) South Africa or North Africa. And we have people from both. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, In fact, we think that one of the first people who came from an African country was somebody who came here from Egypt and was a professor at University of Kentucky. And in fact, his, the reason we know that is because his daughter was a good friend of our daughters and he, I was in the same college. Wow. And Risk, Dr. Risk was one of the first in the, in the 60s. And, and we also, there's, there's a doctor here who grew up in Zambia, but he's really originally from India. Oh, uh, yeah. A, uh, a young man who, he's a Peace Corps volunteer, just finished Peace Corps service in Senegal. But he was born in South Africa and lived in Zimbabwe. And so we tried to make it a a big campus. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. So uh, just to wrap up, do we have any idea how many African immigrants live in Kentucky? At this point, more than 23,000. Wow. And there was a real growth because that was not true 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The the, the diversity visa made a, a big difference in a lot of because a lot of African countries were on that list. And so uh, some of the people that we interviewed got diversity visas. Uh, some people came to uh, for education. Some, some people came, came as refugees. refugees. Yeah, some came as asylees, all those things. Some of the early folks came, went to school, maybe got a graduate degree, decided to stay, and, and some for business. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Entrepreneur. Yeah, we, we interviewed a, a bishop. We interviewed a uh, former ambassador. You know, so a great variety of people. Wonderful. And again, as a radio guy, I want to hear these people's accents. So are, are these oral histories available too? Yes, they are. They are. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> well, Angene and Jack Wilson, this has been a great pleasure. What a great way to kick off our series of talking to returned Peace Corps volunteers from Kentucky. They served in Liberia in 1962 to 64. Now they live in Lexington. Thank you all for kicking off our series in such a great way. This has been such a treat. I feel like we could talk all day. We're just scraping the surface here. Well, we're just getting started. <laughs> right. We enjoyed it. <laughs> all right, you all. Stay tuned everyone coming up in just a minute we've got your community action calendar with all kinds of ideas for how to get involved in sustainability and make it a reality now so stay tuned my friends Guantanamo
sounds of Apple Latin behind me now. Many thanks to them for giving us permission to use their great local music on the podcast versions of our local programs here on Forward Radio. You can find it all at forwardradio.org. And while you're there enjoying your listening, why don't you support it? This is a community radio station that doesn't happen without you not only being a listener, but a participant. And that means getting behind these microphones, getting behind the scenes as a volunteer, and supporting us with your financial contributions today at forwardradio.org. Well, my friends, it's time on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, when we turn to our calendar. Get your calendars out and your pencil sharpened. Get ready to take action for sustainability this week. A whole lot going on. And there's a couple great events uh, sponsored this Tuesday evening by Showing Up for Racial Justice. Our local Louisville Showing Up for Racial Justice chapter has an education event on political prisoners, repression, and resistance. It's Tuesday the 29th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. online with uprisings for racial justice across the United States, it is important to learn from those who came before us. Dozens are still being held in U.S. prisons for their involvement in black liberation, Puerto Rican independence, uh, the uh, uh, indigenous movement, white anti-imperialist and pro-liberation movements, and more. Our panelists will address COINTELPRO, as well as the current realities of federal agents, grand juries, and police repression. We will discuss strategies of resistance and security 
community together. Panelists include Rosa Alicia Clemente, a black Puerto Rican woman born and raised in the Bronx. She's an organizer, producer, independent journalist, and scholar activist. And Claude Marx is founder and co-director of the Freedom Archives. He was imprisoned in the United States for his support of the Puerto Rican independence movement and his commitment to anti-imperialism. Lance Soto, director of the American Indian Movement in Indiana and Kentucky, is an enrolled member of the Cocopa Indian tribe. And Sherry Wright is a poet, artist, documentarian, and recently a live streamer. During the 80s, she was involved in work against indigenous grave desecrations and the illegal artifacts trade. So you can find the link to register for this virtual event at facebook.com slash S-U-R-J Louisville. And again, that's Tuesday the 29th, 6.30 to 8 p.m. online, an L-Surge education event. Uh, find more at facebook.com slash S-U-R-J Louisville. And then right after that, at 8.30 on the 29th, uh, the National Showing Up for Racial Justice is hosting a political education webinar on what are the threats we face in this time. This webinar is part of Surge's ongoing commitment to political education, a critical component in forming strategy and movement building. Our hope is that this webinar supports our base to increase understanding of the threats we face at this time, from how they emerged to the range of dynamics that sustains them, inside and outside the government structures to identify key aspects of struggles in relationship to those threats and to empower folks to take strategic action despite these threats. Panelists include Rachel Herzig, who lives and works in Oakland, where she fights the violence of policing and imprisonment. She's the executive director of the Center for Political Education, a resource for political organizations and movements on the left, the working class, and people of color. Matthew Lyons, who has been writing about right-wing politics for over 25 years and is the author of Insurgent Supremacist, the U.S. Far-Right's Challenge to State and Empire, released in 2018. And Hillary Moore is a political educator and has written on the topics of anti-racism and social movements for the last 10 years. Her work focuses on the far-right climate change, state structures, and systems of oppression, as well as liberal and left forms of resistance. She's the author of Burning Earth, Changing Europe, How the Racist Right Exploits the Climate Crisis and What We Can Do About It, uh, released in 2020. She also co-authored No Fascist USA, the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, and Lessons for Today's Movements, uh, released by City Lights earlier in this year as well. Uh, all those great speakers are going to be at 8.30 on Tuesday the 29th online as a part of Surge's uh, education webinar on what are the threats we face in this time. You can register for it and get the link to watch it online at bit.ly bit.ly slash threats we face bit.ly slash threats we face now, on Wednesday, there's a bunch of important things to note. Wednesday, September 30th, for one, is the deadline to complete the census. The Louisville Census Complete Count Committee and community leaders are urging residents to complete the U.S. Census before September 30th and notes that census takers are visiting every household that has not already responded. In certain areas, the Census Bureau is also calling households, reminding them to respond. Census takers will have a valid ID badge with their photograph, a U.S. Department of Commerce 
commerce watermark and an expiration date. Census workers may also carry Census Bureau bags and other equipment with the Census Bureau logo. You can learn more and you can even complete it online. Go to louisvilleky.gov census. It is so important that we get an accurate count of every person in our county, our city, our state, and our nation so that representation is fair and equal. Also coming up on Wednesday, September 30th at 7, 30, at 7 p.m., there's an, an, an online event about water monitoring and drinking water safety. This event is co-sponsored by the Holt the Harm Network, and it will address water monitoring and drinking water safety right here in the Ohio River Valley, including the work of Orsanko, West Virginia University, Riverkeeper, and other groups that monitor the Ohio River and its tributaries. So join us to learn about the work of our water authorities that help keep drinking water safe. Uh, again, this is Wednesday at 7 p.m. and the speakers include Orsanko Water Monitoring with uh, Richard Harrison, the executive director of Orsanko, uh, Three Rivers Quest, Ohio River and Beaver Monitoring with Melissa O'Neill of West Virginia University, uh, Water Pollution and Radioactivity with Dr. John Stoltz of Duquesne University, uh, Citizen Actions will be covered by Eric Harder of the Mount Watershed Association, Mountain Watershed Association. Uh, we'll be talking about alarm stream monitoring, the Nurdle Patrol and a waterkeeper update and we'll get a legislative update from Sarah Inamorato and you can join the discussion in Q&A uh, this Wednesday 7pm again go to bit.ly bit.ly slash beaver events b-e-a-v-e-r events 2020 bit.ly slash beaver events 2020 for the 7pm September 30th water monitoring and drinking water safety event in person on Wednesday, September 30th. A very cool event is happening right here related to the Ohio River as well at the Waterfront Botanical Gardens, which is down on Frankfurt Avenue at its very end at River Road. It'll be in celebration of the 50th, the year of the 50th Earth Day here. We're going to have an Ohio River celebration on Wednesday the 30th from 5 to 8 p.m. A celebration of our fair river is planned to kick off this week's Ohio River Basin Summit. Join us to learn how researchers conservation groups and recreation enthusiasts collaborate to restore and protect the Ohio River and its tributaries. Inspirational exhibits will be arranged across the gardens with music featuring local artists. And then at 6 p.m., we'll pause in our explorations to hear short presentations from representatives of the City of Louisville, the Ohio River Basin Alliance, and the Ohio River Consortium for Research and Education. This event is free and open to the public, but registration is required. The number of participants will be limited due to COVID-19, uh, and all attendees must wear masks and, and keep physical distancing. You can find the link to register at louisville.edu slash sustainability. Just look for the Ohio River Summit, and you'll find the link to register there on Eventbrite. And hey, while you're there at louisville.edu slash sustainability, you can also register for the free public event that will conclude the summit on Friday the 2nd at 10 a.m. to noon 
June, there'll be an online sustainability roundtable about seizing the day for Ohio River restoration. Again, this is in collaboration with the Ohio River Basin Summit and Symposium. And UofL's sustainability roundtable invites everyone to this very special online conversation to conclude the summit, which is free and open to the public. You'll be joining the staff from the National Wildlife Federation in an interactive discussion about a proposed science-based framework for ecosystem restoration that considers threats, including habitat loss, climate change, and others to the Ohio River and its tributaries, impacts from those threats, and potential approaches to restoring the aquatic environment in the basin. We believe we have a historic opportunity to engage many diverse stakeholders in crafting a visionary ecosystem restoration plan for our river that leads to a strong restoration economy, supports people who have historically borne the brunt of pollution and environmental degradation, people of color, rural, and low-income communities, and tribal nations as well, and benefits fish, wildlife, and many other species in the basin. So come prepared to offer ideas, energy, and insight. It's going to take all of us to help restore the Ohio River and its wetlands and habitats in the 15-state region that contribute to a healthy and productive ecosystem. Working together, we can make a difference, so please join the discussion and participate in crafting a visionary ecosystem restoration plan from day one. Again, you can learn more and register at louisville.edu slash sustainability. Just look for the Ohio River Summit, and you'll find the link there to register for this event, which is Friday, October 2nd, 10 a.m. to noon online. Now, coming up this Saturday, it's your next opportunity to feed the West. The Louisville Community Grocery will be uh, co-hosting along with the Louisville Association for Community Economics and the Community Farm Alliance an effort to pack some grocery bags filled with fresh local produce grown by black farmers to be delivered directly door-to-door to families in the West End through Feed the West. And this is Saturdays. Uh, there's two volunteer opportunities. You can help pack the bags and do better. 100 or so bags each time from 3 to 5 p.m. on Saturdays, and then they are delivered from 5 to 7 p.m. And your next opportunity is coming up this Saturday, October 3rd, and it all starts at Chef Space there at 1812 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard. Uh, And the other dates coming up are October 17th or October 31st. You can learn more and sign up for all of it at signupgenius.com. Go there and search for uh, Louisville Food Cooperative at gmail.com and you will find the pack and deliver produce bags for Feed the West event coming up Saturdays, 3 to 5 p.m. or 5 to 7 p.m. or you could do it both coming up uh, October 3rd is your next opportunity. Finally, this is my last opportunity to beseech you to please register to vote and get your friends, your family, your neighbors, everyone you know registered to vote. The deadline to register for the November general election in Kentucky is coming up this Monday, October 5th. You must do it by 4 p.m. You can do so at GoVoteKY.com. It's also a great year to skip the weight chaos and crowds on election day by voting early and all Kentucky voters have two options to do so. You can either choose mail-in voting by executive order. Any Kentucky voter concerned about coronavirus may request a mail-in absentee ballot. Uh, You could do it online at GoVoteKY.com. The deadline to apply online for a mail-in ballot is October 9th just before midnight. So once voters requested a mail-in ballot, you cannot vote in person unless you don't receive your requested ballot by October 28th. And uh, they must be postmarked by election day, November 3rd. 
Now, the key to participating in this process is to request your ballot early, fill it out carefully, exactly as instructed, and send it in promptly. Or you can vote early in person, and that begins Tuesday, October 13th, and will be available during regular business hours and at least four hours on the three Sunday, Saturdays before the November 3rd election. So if you feel safe coming to vote in person, you're encouraged to do so, as it may be the most certain way to ensure your vote will be counted uh, and that appropriate physical distancing can be maintained. Uh, so learn more at GoVoteKY.com. And I'd also like to remind you once again that free trees are available. Fall planting season is coming up. Now's the time to make your reservation for some free trees from Trees Louisville, who is partnering with the Arbor Day Foundation to give away 700 free trees to Louisville residents this fall. Available species include some great, beautiful giants, tulip poplar, sycamore, American beech, willow oak, redbud, sugar maple. Oh, you can make your own maple syrup here in Kentucky or black gum. Uh, you can order yours today at arborday.org slash trees Louisville. Again, Trees Louisville is partnering with the Arbor Day Foundation to provide these free trees. This is the fourth round of a partnership that has already delivered nearly 3,000 trees in the past year at no cost to residents. These trees will have a significant impact on energy savings, carbon sequestration, and improved water quality for decades to come. This program estimates where tr a tree planted on your property will provide maximum benefits as well. Trees should arrive in late October or early November, just in time for the tree planting season. You'll get one free tree per resident, and the trees are one to three feet tall in one gallon pots so pretty manageable for your average homeowner again go to arborday.org slash trees louisville to reserve your free native tree species today for fall planting also want to remind you that every saturday you have the opportunity to participate in the progressive women of old louisville walking tours that take place now through the end of october you know, the women of Old Louisville helped transform the city during the rise of the suffrage movement. Well, you can learn about their philanthropic history and contributions they left behind on this guided walking tour through historic Old Louisville. It's every Saturday at 10 a.m. through Halloween on October 31st. Tickets are $25 for adults, $15 for students. And you can purchase them at conradcaldwell.org, as this is co-sponsored by the Conrad Caldwell House Museum, the Women's Club of Louisville, and the Filson Historical Society. Again, that's conradcaldwell.org, C-O-N-R-A-D-C-A-L-D-W-E-L-L.org. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thank you all for tuning in and uh, stay tuned to Ford Radio. Lots of great stuff coming up. And I'll be back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well. Set them, set them free. 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 Set them free.